People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Today on Health Gig, we're talking with Dr. Diane Simeone, who is a pancreatic cancer surgeon and researcher. I'm Doro, and Trisha and I have personal experience dealing with a loved one who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Trisha's late husband, Danny, and my brother-in-law passed due to the illness. Dr. Diane Simeone, MD, is an internationally recognized surgeon and scientist. She recently joined NYU Langone as Associate Director for Translational Research at the Pearl Mutter Cancer Center and head of its newly established Pancreatic Cancer Center. Previously, Dr. Simeone served as Director of the Gastrointestinal Oncology Program at the University of Michigan Comprehensive Cancer Center. There, she led the team that discovered pancreatic cancer stem cells, a subpopulation of cells within tumors that are especially resistant to treatment. Welcome to HealthKick, Dr. Simeone. Today's podcast sort of hits home for us. So we're so amazed at what you do. And we want to start the podcast before we talk about your amazing work. If you could just tell us a little bit about you, about your family, where you grew up, and a little bit about you. Just for the audience. Diane Simeone. I'm a surgeon and a scientist, and I am the director of the Pancreatic Cancer Center at NYU Langone Health. I'm also the associate director of our translational research here at the Perlmutter Cancer Center. I grew up in Rhode Island in an academic family. My dad was an economics professor at Providence College, five kids. I went to Brown University for college. I actually played basketball there. I went to Duke University for medical school. Then I did my training at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I was faculty there for many years, 20-something years, and I came to New York about six years ago now. That's my uh, life story in a nutshell. I'm married. I have two kids. I uh, work hard, but I try to have balance in life. You know, I have a research lab. I've been NIH-funded for actually the last 25 years, and I have a pretty busy clinical practice, operating on patients with pancreas cancer, and also seeing patients who are at elevated risk for pancreatic cancer. And I try to interweave my research program and type of patients I see, because I think that we really need to drive change in how we think about pancreas cancer, from understanding its biology, to developing better therapeutics, to really understanding who's at risk, what the contributions are. You know, we really want to change survival for pancreas cancer, which has really been stuck at a low yeah. percentage. Ladies, you may have seen, you know, the numbers went up one click this year where the survival rate was 12 percent. But I personally think the pace at which we're changing that is not acceptable. And we could talk a little bit about, you know, perhaps strategies to change that. So how did you decide to get into the pancreas world? Like what made you decide to kind of dedicate your life to pancreatic cancer or pancreas world, I guess? Well, as a surgeon, you know, the pancreas is always a tough organ. It's kind of hidden in the back of the abdomen. It's tough to get to. Surgery involving the pancreas can be challenging. 
But what really struck me when I was both a medical student and a resident is it seemed like the field was very underdeveloped. People weren't really focusing on it. We really didn't know very much about pancreas cancer at all. And I was really struck how almost all the patients that came in, they actually weren't candidates for surgery because the disease was too advanced. It became clear to me that it was a significant unmet need from both a clinical and research perspective. And that's why when I was a senior resident in surgery, I decided that this was an a important area to work on. Mm. And being both a scientist and a surgeon, I thought I could help connect those yeah. dots. A lot of things happen in the lab, but if you have a basic scientist working on something, they might not really understand how to move something into the clinic or what the clinical implications or ramifications are of the research. So I felt I could be a bridge builder in the research domain for pancreas cancer. Why is pancreatic cancer so different from other cancers? It has the lowest survival rate. And why is it so different? So why is pancreatic cancer so different? That's a question we've been asking for a long time. And I think we're just starting to unravel some of the mystery of the pancreas, if you will. The pancreas basically performs two functions. It helps to regulate blood sugar. It contains clusters of cells in the pancreas called islets that contain beta cells, which make insulin. But it also contains many, many cells that make digestive enzymes. I think that's a contributing factor. You have an organ that has these enzymes that are just bad actors. And if they get released, they create a lot of havoc, a lot of information. And if you get a cell that starts to go awry, starts to accumulate a mutation or two, that soil is very fertile to drive pancreas cancer. And unfortunately, because the pancreas is hidden in it in the back of the abdomen, not easy to access, it's hard to pick up early tumors and they tend to spread or metastasize very early. So it has a bad biology. So those two combination of things make it a challenge and not an unaddressable challenge, but it requires extra work and extra effort for us to make advances. You know, when we talked and met before, you were saying that, you know, the conversation needs to change, that people need to start realizing that there are things that we can be doing in all areas of cancer, but also including pancreatic cancer. So you want to change the conversation to talk about, look, look at what we did with COVID, right? How quickly everyone came to the table and came up with solutions, right? That you're saying, look, we could do the same thing here. It's all about early detection, right? I do believe it's about early detection. As a surgeon, when I come to clinic to see patients with pancreas cancer, only about 15% of patients with pancreas cancer are even eligible for surgery. So the vast majority, you know, 80 to 90% already have advanced disease that precludes the possibility for a curative surgical resection. Mm. And because of the kind of bad biology of pancreas cancer that we've talked about, it tends to be particularly resistant to standard chemotherapy that has some efficacy in other cancers. And the microenvironment of pancreas cancer is very immunosuppressive. And the immunotherapy breakthroughs that we've heard about, these don't work in pancreas cancer. So we have right. to have more sophisticated therapies. But I think if we really just made a concentrated effort on early detection, it's just going to move the whole field in a much more positive way where if we're dealing with removing one centimeter tumors, when we can do that, that can relate to a, you know, 70, 80 percent long-term survival rate. 
you know, I think we're in a different era than in the past where there are a lot of new advanced technologies that would allow us to do that. We just haven't made the investment and mapped out the strategy to do this as a field. I always say if we can land on Mars, we should be able to pick up right. a three to four millimeter pancreas cancer and have brought all the right people to the table and not made the proper investment. And after, uh, you know, we developed the COVID vaccine, I've officially declared the next national emergency <laughs> should be driving early detection of pancreas cancer because we've lagged in making advances is predicted to become the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States by 2030. When I give a talk to a large audience and I ask people to raise their hand if someone in their family or someone they love has died of pancreas cancer, at least a third, if not 40% of the hands in the room go up. It's time to pay attention to what has been a neglected cancer. We couldn't agree more. How do you get the word out to people and what does it look like for physicians? What needs to change specifically? There are already things we can do now. It's surprising to me. Every week in clinic, I see patients that come in and they have a family history of pancreas cancer and they might have asked their doctor, should I do anything about that? And their doctor will have told them, no, there's not really anything can be done. And that's actually untrue. So if you have two or more family members with pancreas cancer, in particular on the same side, you should get genetic testing to see if you carry a gene that put you at risk for pancreas cancer and be enrolled in a screening program where your pancreas gets imaged once a year. Even now, the guidelines are passed that if you have a single first-degree family member with pancreas cancer, you should get genetic testing to see if you carry an at-risk gene. What has struck me is, over the years, just by being observant, that there clearly is a genetic risk of pancreas cancer that is probably at least 15% of cases, maybe a little bit more, between 15 and 20%, that's really been neglected. And a number of years ago, we actually did a study, and this was back when I was at University of Michigan, we said, let's do genetic testing on the next 500 pancreas cancer patients that come in. And we found 15% of them carried a mutation. And about half didn't have a family history that was suggestive. And using that information and partnering with others around the country, we were able to push through guidelines such that every patient with pancreas cancer should get tested to see if they carry a mutation that put them at risk. And if we find that's the case, then that has implications for family members. Now, obviously, this isn't all of the pieces of the puzzle, but this is an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. We mm -hmm. also know that there are modifiable risk factors, smoking, heavy mm -hmm. drinking, which for women is quantified as more than one drink a day or men wow. more than two drinks a day. Obesity and diabetes are associated with pancreatic cancer risk. And there are probably other things we know in some parts of the world, environmental contaminants, heavy metals in the soil, that can be a risk for pancreas cancer. We still do not know all the risk factors. And I would say half of the patients I see that walk in the door in my clinic with a new pancreas cancer, I cannot identify what their risk is. Right. And I think this is an important area of research that just has not been developed yet. We need to understand to define what that level of risk is and make sure we're proactive in getting the right people getting tested and screened. And of course, those are the tools we have now, but we are in a position to advance more sophisticated tools like early detection 
blood tests, more sophisticating imaging. And what you're saying is it's here now. People can do something about it now. When people have a family member with pancreatic cancer, and you said now the standard is if it's one person, in Danny's case, he was the only person in the family that they knew that had pancreatic cancer. But actually, upon asking questions, there were mysterious deaths, you know, that happened with an uncle. And so the question always came up, I wonder if that's what that was. It's been uh, in place for quite a long time that decisions about genetic testing are done on the family history. And I do think getting a three-generation family history of cancer is important. But what we made the case for, and that's how we were able to push through getting genetic testing for pancreas cancer patients, is half the time there was no history and we picked up a mutation. Just today, I saw somebody in clinic that was found through a family member. A family member was identified as having a mutation, and it's actually a mutation, a BRCA2 mutation, for which they should have been instructed to consider pancreas cancer screening, and that was never offered. A pancreatic cancer was just found on imaging. Mm. And then they also asked about a family member that had a BRCA mutation, and they were told nothing needs to be done. That is wrong as well. They actually do need to be seen for pancreas screenings. And that's why I applaud both of you for getting this message out in this podcast. And, you know, Honor Bond, who's our mutual friend, had taught us something that he said, every time you talk about pancreatic cancer, please say this out loud, that type 2 diabetes adult onset could be an early indicator of pancreatic cancer. Not saying that if you get type 2 diabetes adult onset, you're going to have pancreatic cancer but it is a red flag. Can you talk a little bit about that? Diabetes has two relationships to pancreas cancer. The important relationship that you're talking about is someone can develop new onset type 2 diabetes. And of course, that's common in the U.S., but if it is associated with weight loss as opposed to weight gain, that's the red flag that should make a physician dig a little bit deeper. Could this be a presentation of pancreatic cancer? And that gets missed all the time. And I would say at least a third of patients may present with a symptom like that that gets overlooked. Diabetes creates a low level of kind of stress and inflammation in the pancreas. It kind of is that seed and soil theory, if you will, where it creates an environment that if you were to get a cell that had a mutation that might want to change that cell from a benign cell to a pancreas cancer cell, it would be more likely to grow in that. And pancreatic cancer is really the only cancer that presents with new onset diabetes with weight loss. Okay. The goal would obviously be able to have a blood test to distinguish standard type 2 diabetes versus pancreatic cancer type 2 diabetes. And there are a number of groups around the country working on that. Thank you for that. That was something I know we had shared with you before that actually happened in our case. I remember when Danny was diagnosed and then there was a moment of what do we Uh do? Once you find out you have a diagnosis, can you take us through the protocol of what a family should do? Not every center around the country has expertise in pancreas cancer. And I think this is one of those cancers where you really need to go to a center that has expertise. How do you find that out? 
sometimes it's asking around, right, uh, medical professionals in your community. There are resources to try to find that out. The Pancreatic Cancer Action Network keeps a list of pancreatic cancer centers with expertise, as does the National Pancreas Foundation. So there are places that you can find that out. Most comprehensive cancer centers in the United States will have an organized, multidisciplinary team for patients to see. So you want to go to a center that has expertise in surgery, medical oncology, advanced gastroenterology. Patients with pancreas cancer have unique challenges compared to other cancer types. Sometimes the tumors can obstruct the GI tract and cause nausea and vomiting. Sometimes the tumors can obstruct the bile duct, which drains bile from the liver, goes right through the head of the pancreas. And if it's obstructed, people become jaundiced or their eyes turn yellow, and it can make people quite sick. So sometimes one of the first maneuvers is actually to put a stent in the bile duct to relieve the obstruction. An important additional piece of information for people is when a biopsy is done, and I see this all the time, a lot of times the tissue is not obtained to do tumor sequencing. So maybe about a quarter of patients, when you sequence their tumor, they may have unique mutations that would make us treat them differently than with standard chemotherapy. It's called precision medicine or precision oncology. And you need to get enough tissue to do that sequencing. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. You need to be at a place that is already thinking about all of this from the time a patient walks in the door. And is treatment bioindividual? So depending on where the cancer is in the pancreas, or does it depend on each person being different and unique? So it's a little bit of both. Probably the most important step after getting to a place that has expertise is to have proper staging of your pancreas cancer. And by that, we typically recommend a thin-cut pancreatic protocol CT scan and a chest CT. And the CT scan has to be done with very thin cuts because the pancreas sits very close to a number of very critical blood vessels in the abdomen, the blood vessels that supply blood to the liver and the intestines. And just by the very nature of pancreas cancer, it tends to make a lot of scar tissue, what we call desmoplasia, and want to wrap around the blood vessels. And so we want to properly stage the tumor, not only locally with the relationship of the tumor to the blood vessels, but also to make sure if there's any evidence it's spread, the most common site being to the liver, but maybe 10% of patients might spread to the lung. So proper staging, so we know what stage the patient is up front is critical because that will define types of therapeutic options. We do have standard chemotherapy that can be offered to patients, and there are two basic regimens. One's called fulfurinox, and another one's called gemabraxane. But we always want to consider clinical trials for patients. And sometimes that can be done in what we call the first-line setting before they start any treatment, and sometimes in the second-line setting where they may have started a treatment, but it's not working, and then you want to move on to what might be a more effective therapy. So multidisciplinary team at a competent center, proper staging, germline testing to see if a patient carries a mutation that put them at risk, tumor sequencing, 
and then consideration of both standard therapy or clinical trial options. Sometimes patients ask me, how do I find out what clinical trials I might be available? The best way is to go to a center of excellence, but also you can look at websites like the American Cancer Society. Pancreatic Cancer Action Network keeps an up-to-date listing of clinical trials. One thing that's important is when someone's diagnosed with pancreas cancer, it's not an emergency to start treatment within a week or two's time. It's better to really gather all the information you need so you can make the wisest choice. And if you see a team and you're not certain it's the right fit or they have all the options you need, it's perfectly fine and very acceptable to get a second opinion. Patients should not worry or feel guilty about the doctor's feelings. Right. Any good doctor would be very comfortable with a patient getting a second opinion. You wanted the patient to be comfortable. And as you'd mentioned, too, the pancreas world is pretty small, and you all work pretty closely together, right, supporting one another because it is your mission to help eradicate, if we can, pancreatic cancer. So it's a tight group. It is a tight group. It's easy. I've named some of the resources to Mm -hmm. reach out to figure out where people are knowledgeable. From a surgical perspective, it's very important to make sure if you're going to undergo surgery that you have a competent surgeon. It's okay to ask a surgeon, what is your 30 and 90 day mortality rate? What is your average length of stay? If you need help figuring out what the standards are, really any good surgeon should be doing at least 50 of these, you know, a year. I personally have done about 1,500 pancreas surgeries. I've been uh, working on just the pancreas for a long, long time. Experience matters here. It's not also just the surgeon, but whether the hospital has all the support you need, the advanced endoscopy, high-quality radiology, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Dr. Simeone, are there any new effective treatments on the horizon that you're working on? I'll tell you about a couple of things that I think are important for patients to know about. First of all, you know, the getting your tumor sequenced part of the equation that I talked about earlier, that's really important. I'm so amazed that that is still not done routinely in the United States. And I encourage patients before you get a biopsy, make sure the doctor is going to send your tumor for sequencing. Sometimes we find things that can be game changers. One to 2% of pancreatic cancers have a mutation in a mismatch repair gene. Those cancers are very sensitive to immunotherapy. The results can be quite dramatic. If we find that someone has a BRCA mutation, those tumors are very sensitive to particular types of chemotherapy. We would want to make sure the patients got that particular type of chemotherapy. So that's one piece of the equation. You know, adding in the precision drugs that we have that we didn't have before. There are some other exciting things on the horizon. There's a whole category of new drugs that are coming into play called RAS inhibitors. RAS is an oncogene and it's very commonly mutated in pancreas cancer. Over 90% of pancreas cancers have a RAS mutation. It has been previously felt to be an undruggable target, but through clever work of a number of basic scientists around the country, they have figured out how to get drugs to stick into very shallow clefts and actually be able to target RAS. 
Now, some of these drugs are in phase one clinical trials at several centers across the United States. Phase one trials are to look at safety, mostly, but they'll give some initial sense of efficacy. Once these drugs are proven to be safe, and right now they're being given to all patients with RAS mutations, but as they're proven to be safe, there'll be pancreas-specific trials that will be coming forward, and these drugs will be tested either alone or in combination with other drugs. And I think this is something for everyone to keep their eye on. <laughs> Second, there are unique immunotherapy approaches that are being developed that I think have significant potential. You may have heard about CAR-T cells, which have been very effective for blood-based cancers. Now they're really being developed for solid tumors, and there are some very interesting clinical trials for CAR-T-based therapy for patients with pancreas cancer. So I do think, while I have said before that kind of standard single-agent immunotherapy doesn't work very well, with the exception of MS-high pancreas cancers, which is only 1% to 2%, some more sophisticated immune-based approaches with unique combinations or with cell-based therapy. I think that's something we want to keep our eye on. And a number of our centers have clinical trials that are open and active for patients right now. It's so great to hear that things are changing, that some promising information. And I know one thing that Dora and I really wanted to talk about today with you is this incredible platform that you've put together we love the idea that it's creating a group of activists that really, really might be the thing that could help move things a little quicker. So anyway, talk all pre-seed for us. <laughs> pre-seed is basically an idea I came with probably about five or so years ago where it's just reflecting on where we are as a field and what we need to do. And as I mentioned, you know, I'm a surgeon and I have so many patients that aren't candidates for surgery because their disease is too advanced. And even for patients that I operate on, often their tumors are pretty good sized. Just because someone's resectable doesn't mean they necessarily have an early stage tumor as we're picking them up now. You know, often these tumors are three centimeters or so in size, may involve lymph nodes and blood vessels. So I thought, my gosh, I'm going to go through my entire career and we are not going to have moved the needle in pancreas cancer. And it's so clear to me that early detection is where we need to be. We know this, right? We've seen it in other cancers, colon cancer, breast cancer. So how do we do this? And as I mentioned earlier, we have some of the technology now that I think can drive this. But what happens across the country is you have a lot of centers kind of doing their own thing and working at tackling a problem at small scale. And if you remember at the beginning of the show, you mentioned COVID <laughs> and, you know, we had a worldwide emergency. Everybody put their institutional flags down right. and we had to solve a problem. I wondered if we should really just embark upon a totally different strategy. And so we got a starter donation Instead of using it for my own research lab, I used it to set up a data coordinating center, which is with Arbor Research in Ann Arbor. They do this for a number of different consortia. And I reached out to centers first in New York City. Can we play together in the sandbox <laughs> in New York City? And yes, we can. By the way, all women work yeah. together. Um, and then it just grew. And the goal was to develop a longitudinal study of individuals at elevated risk of pancreas cancer, heritable risk. 
So either you have a family history or you carry a gene that puts you at risk for pancreas cancer. And our goal was to build a study of 10,000 participants that we would follow for 10 years. What can we accomplish by doing that? First of all, by all working together, centers couldn't join without agreeing to share data. So that's principle number one. Two, we all had to collect data the same way. So it wasn't apples and oranges and pears, but everything could all be done at the same high quality way. And by building this, we can answer really important questions. Who's at risk? What's the risk? Can we prove that screening saves lives? Right now, the U.S. Preventative Task Force doesn't recommend screening of the population because we don't have data that screening saves lives. But how can you generate data unless you do the study? Great. Right Nowadays, we actually have approval for screening for lung cancer. And that was done with a 11,000 patient study. So we needed to go big. Fast forward now, we set this up. The first patient in the study was May 2020, which wasn't that long ago and was actually in the middle of COVID. And now we have almost 50 centers on board and we have almost 4,000 patients in the study. This has been a labor of love and it is amazing. As soon as you describe to people what this is, everybody says, this is how we have to do it. And we have centers across the United States, but also all around the world. Iceland, Norway, Spain, Hungary. And we set a goal of getting from a 12% to a 50% survival in the next 10 years. And that doesn't happen just in the United States. That has to be a worldwide effort. So I feel like we're really onto something. And what I have found, we set up a screening program here at NYU and there hadn't been any. And now we have a very large one. We're probably have close to 900 patients we're following here. Every week people come in the door. I have multiple family members of pancreas cancer. Should I be tested and screened? It's like, yes. Last year, I operated on six people who developed a pancreas cancer in our screening program. They all had small tumors, all stage one. Those people have a very, very high chance of long-term survival for their pancreas cancer, probably close to 80%. Wow. It's an amazing huge. movement yeah. forward, and we just have to amplify that across the United States and beyond. What are some of the obstacles that you've run into getting people on board for Proceed? Is it the sharing of the data? What's been hard, and how have you overcome that? Most centers are okay with sharing data. There are a few that are still holding out. I'll say that's fine, but those centers haven't cured pancreatic cancer yet, so... <laughs> I think teamwork is going to be a better strategy here. You know, we need resources so that people can screen individuals, put data in the database, and collect blood for research. Academia has really been hit by COVID, and early detection is less supported than it should be. So a lot of doctors who are very committed to this, you know, they're not resourced for them and their team to do the work. The other thing is, it's just the regulatory landscape, all the lawyers mm-hmm. that are yeah. institution, you know, intellectual property and all of that create time blocks and something that should take two to three months is taking eight, nine, 10 months a year. It is a little bit like pushing the boulder uphill, but I think it's getting easier. The biggest advocates of all of this are guess who? Patients. Patients. Exactly. And Patients uh, and potential and course. people that have the change. Patients know that this is the way yeah. to do it, yeah. right? 
and they're signing up in droves. And we need the patients to be loud to help us mitigate these obstacles. We invest a lot in therapies, and I think that is still important. But we have not invested very much in early detection, and that needs to change. I so hear you. And when Dora and I were talking about this, I talked to my children, and they all are signing up. And again, you know, that feeling that you said that you kind of want to get out there and that, you know, there is something we can do. You know, early detection is the way to go. And there's a road to that. We saw it with our own eyes. These guys going, yeah, we're in, you know, and then you hear them talking to other people about it. And I think you were referring to that boulder being pushed up the mountain. That is more hands are doing it and it's getting lighter and lighter and lighter. The other observation that's been very interesting is for centers to join pre-seed, they have to have a team in place. They have to follow the standards of care. It's requiring centers to get their act together to join. And you would be surprised how many household named centers around the country do not have any organized effort in early detection or screening for pancreas cancer. So how does it work, Diane, to become part of Precede? You identify where a center is, you contact them. How does it go? So there is a website. It's called www.precedestudy.org with no space between Precede and study. And there, there's a map of the centers around the United States and around the world that are Precede sites. You can also send a communication through the website. Hi, I live in pick your place mm-hmm. around the country and I'm interested in being tested and screened. Can you help me get plugged in? Mm. Because we're geographically diversifying the centers that are part of it, we're working on covering most of the United States. But if someone happens to live somewhere that's more remote, we know almost mm-hmm. everybody in the country that works in pancreatic cancer. So we will get them plugged in with someone. And is there any cost associated with it or how does it all work? There is not a cost for the patient to enter the study. First of all, if someone needs to get testing or screening, that should be covered by insurance. There are guidelines here. So if you have a family history of pancreas cancer, in particular, if you have two or more family members with pancreas cancer, genetic testing and screening should be covered by insurance. There is more of a push now for patients who have a mutation that puts them at risk to get tested and screened. Patients with BRCA2 mutations and ATM mutations, they should be seen and consideration be given for testing and screening. There is an age dependency to the timing of that with these mutations or a family history. It's usually 10 years younger than the youngest case of pancreas cancer in the family or starting at age 50. And then, as I mentioned, if you have a first-degree relative, single first-degree relative with family history of pancreas cancer, genetic testing should be covered. There's clinical care that's involved. And all that should be covered by insurance. And then to join the study, there really isn't much extra work required by the patient other than when they get their blood drawn for clinical testing to have a little bit of blood set aside for research. So it's really not very onerous to a patient and mostly it gets them plugged in for the proper clinic. Right. And then they're followed every year. Most patients are followed every year. There are some patients that might get followed a little bit more frequently depending on the details. To join the study, it allows investigators to use 
their data in a de-identified manner, right? right? If we're really trying to understand risk and do risk modeling. Mm -hmm. This also includes imaging. So all the centers are doing imaging the same way. Typically, for someone to be screened, it's an MRI alternating with an endoscopic ultrasound, which is a fancy kind of upper endoscopy that should be done in centers that do a lot of that. The case we make is if we're going to make advances in pancreas cancer, it all needs to be in the setting of research happening. It helps if patients are seen in centers where we can learn from patients as we go so we can improve care or else we're going to be doing the same thing 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and that's not acceptable. Exactly. I imagine working with pancreas cancer takes an emotional toll. How do you take care of yourself? So it's really interesting. People ask me all the time, how can you work on pancreas cancer? It must be hard. And these are the most amazing patients, right? Especially from a surgical perspective, right? Patients really have to trust you. They're going to undergo general anesthesia and you're going to do a very big operation on them and they're kind of putting their life in your hands. So it's a very unique responsibility that I take very seriously. I also think that being up on the latest research as a clinician actually helps my patients. But you have a very unique bond with patients in this situation, and it's an incredible privilege to be able to take care of patients and help them through something that is very, very hard. It's very rewarding. And some days you're the hero, and some days it's tougher. But I just keep in mind where we're going, which is to have a different day where we're going to be able to tell most patients with pancreas cancer, hey, we picked up your tumor, but it's small and and we can resect it. And the chance of you outliving this cancer are very, very high. And that's what drives me to change what the story is. Also, imagine the patients that have gone before, like Danny, are contributing to your work and how amazing that must be too. I think that for the memoriam of the patients who have all died of pancreatic cancer, it's our job to do better every day. And we have to contribute in different ways. Sometimes it's providing excellent clinical care. Sometimes it's researchers really putting in that extra mile to make that important basic science discovery. What I have tried to push is now we have a pretty good understanding of the basic science of pancreas cancer. There's been a lot of mouse work, but there hadn't really been done a a lot of work in actual people. So we have to study every single patient. We have to learn from every patient. We have to get smarter. What's going on in the pancreas of a patient with pancreas cancer as we treat them, we've never had a window into Now, for some of the clinical trials, we're actually getting tissue before treatment and on treatment. Is the treatment working like we thought it would? Are there some patients that respond beautifully, but others that don't respond at all? This is the work we need to do now. I've officially declared it the decade (laughs) to study the human. Yeah. You know, we don't have tails and whiskers. We can cure pancreas cancer in the lab, but we, you know, it hasn't translated yet to what's happening to our patients. So I really want us to have a much more concerted effort in understanding human pancreatic cancer biology. Well, you're doing the most amazing work. And I know Trisha and I are just yeah. so admire what you're doing. I was going to say it's important to realize Preseed has actually involved hundreds of people. So um, while I may be speaking, I want to give credit 
to the leaders at centers all across the world. We have people really rolling up their sleeves. I got a reach out from the Precede Center in Singapore yesterday, the day before that, the center in Barcelona, the day before that, the group in Dallas. You know, I think people are tired of pancreas yeah. cancer. <laughs> and if we see a light that we can work together to change outcomes, people are ready to really work together. Right. And uh, I'm very inspired by that. So are we. So are we. And thank you for being a leader in this. And and as Doris said, our family is 100% behind this and will be part of this and hopefully part of your life for a long time. Well, thank you, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully you'll come back again soon with good reports. <laughs> Been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>